0: Uh, did you manage to do the uh SPN, PL, PL, both of you? Yep.
1: Yeah. I, I did it weeks ago and then was going to update it ahead of Friday's deadline and ended up in the pub instead. I am impressed that I have done it and Steve hasn't. No, I have done it. I just did it I did it weeks ago. I've done it. Oh, so you I didn't just did not update it. I just went right that that'll do. There's no Ronaldo factor taken into consideration.
2: I found the bottom six, so like the top four is quite obvious and thinking about thinking about it as an SPNPL thing, you, you, you can't do too much damage to yourself in the top four because I think I had City to win it but if Chelsea win it and yep. City come second then you're losing yes. a point, it's fine, not a problem. Um, and the mid-table mid, t- mid similar like between like Spurs, Leicester, Everton, West Ham, Villa, Leeds, they're all going to be in exactly. that rough kind of... But then the bottom of the table... There's there's like seven or eight teams who could who could finish bottom or nineteenth to Norwich or finish finish bottom, like who could finish nineteenth or could finish twelfth, and it's really hard to tell. Like where in Newcastle gonna finish? Like that's th- th- there is no there's no read on that. Like Newcastle could, could be Newcastle are quite a bad football team, but they could easily be quite a bad football team that comes nineteenth and gets relegated, or they could be quite a bad, like no better than than quite bad, and finish twelfth and everyone goes oh. You know, Rafa Benita's got a lot of praise for finishing third season. Steve Bruce doesn't get any, does he? Yeah, what, what does that say about the fans? Fickle, aren't they? And That, is the, that but, is the first impression that Rory has done of Stephen. No, that's not. that wasn't an impression of Stephen. That was my generic pundit voice.
0: Well, it's it's a point that, an
1: exact point that Stephen made on this podcast. Generic southern man impression. If, no,
2: well, if anyone was channeling Chris Sutton, that who, whenever, whenever you mention Newcastle like like Sutton's go-to point is when well, Bruce finished nearly where Benitez did and, and the reaction was different you think yeah that's because like ultimate position in the lead table isn't the only barometer by which fans gauge success um, and... I quite like the idea Rory that where will Newcastle
1: finish feels like a a subject for a podcast on a sliding scale from 12th
2: to in all out warfare <laughs> <laughs> No, I just I find like there's, the, basically there's a lot of teams at the bottom who are much of a muchness. Brentford who are much more positive than Newcastle. Brent Brentford could get relegated, but equally could finish eleventh, and that that is where this year's PL will be won and lost.
0: Yeah, it's the West Ham's that'll kill you. They'll they'll knock you or they'll break you. So a I, West Ham, A lot of people went for West Ham finishing mid to low of the yeah. bottom half. Convoluted way of saying fifteenth. And they obviously finished sixth. So anybody who got West Ham anywhere near,
2: approaching where they yeah. eventually finished, did very well. But this is how you have to play SPNPLPL because if you, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether whether Leeds finish ninth, tenth, eleventh, or twelfth. What matters is that they finish one of those positions. You're not going to do too much damage to yourself by, by not, not not getting them spot on. It is the team that is the team that kind of explodes into the into the top half that no one is coming. That's where. Where you know where legends are made, legends are broken, dreams are dashed, and this year it's harder than ever, I think, because it's also stratified. You can tell who's going to finish in which bit of the table. There will be one, there will be one team that surprises everybody.
1: SPMPLPL will be decided by the teams that are most often last on
2: Match of the day. <laughs> yes, a reason to stay with Match of the day to the bit where Steve's on it <laughs>
0: These are all excellent tips for a competition uh, whose entries closed last week. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, A Great British Immigrant Story, and Stephen Wyeth, just next to him, Turn Back the Boats. Uh, those of you who uh, enjoyed <laughs> some, uh, some tabloid newspaper coverage of, uh, of, of the weekend will appreciate that. Uh, Andy Hinchcliffe, by the way, is traveling back from Portugal with a six pack under his singlet and another in his duty free bag. Um, uh, In his absence, the the food is... I I remember um, when I was a young journalist and the radio station I worked for felt like uh, all of us needed help from an official consultant, an outside expert to come in and tool us, school us, train us in the ways of reading the news. Tool us? You you needed needed
2: tools. an outside expert to to tool you. you.
0: And uh, he, um, I think his name was Paul, and he had a very large beard. Anyway, he said that the two things that you should never, ever drink or eat just prior to broadcasting are crisps and either a very hot or very cold drink. So just before starting the podcast, I got myself some crisps and a cup of tea.
2: I was thought you were going to say you, you, um, you had a nice cup of hot crisps. <laughs> oh my show, some, show some salt and vinegar in the microwave, see what happens.
1: I'm upgrading, I'm upgrading from a crisp sandwich to a crisp tea.
2: Like a crisp broth.
1: Just
0: something you can get from Waitrose for about £4.50. The football is, this is normally where we'd ask Chinch uh, what uh, we're talking about today. Uh, Perhaps he knew that we were talking about history, so immediately rescheduled his flight so he wouldn't have to consider his own place in it. Specifically, it's about tradition and how fiercely we should preserve it. The case study, the UK's Saturday afternoon football blackout. I say case study, it's just a reminder to make sure I actually include it as part of our conversation uh, that is to come you can get in touch with the podcast Setpiecemenu@gmail.com at gmail.com is our email address find us on twitter facebook and youtube as well and indeed on tpublic.com that's our merch site uh, just search for spm or setpiece menu shane thomas one of the most eloquent and i think mm. now actually resourceful uh, listeners to the podcast has provided us with something we were lacking in last week's episode about women's football, no, not self-awareness, uh, but the views—we're we're missing that in every episode. But the views of multiple females. Hello, Royal Mail, Parcel Force, DHL, and Carrier Pigeon. A couple of thoughts on your women's football episode, in which I'll be borrowing from those better equipped to speak on this than me. On the point regarding analysing the women's game fairly without being mindless cheerleaders, a point talking of eloquence, made by Stephen eloquently at the end of last week's episode. Sophie Lawson wrote something on this back in June in a piece called Women's Football's Long-Term Relationship with Toxic Positivity. In it, she says this, As defensive as fans tend to be about their favourite teams or players, it's tenfold in women's football. It's almost like it's our duty to protect it. However, it's not just the fans, but the journalists who too routinely use the kid gloves when they report on the game. Positives are spun out after poor performances, and accountability is left behind in the hurry to lift the product up. In our frenzy to elevate the game, we're doing it a great disservice. We watch through rose-tinted lenses, and we end up encouraging everyone else to perch glasses on their noses before viewing what we're selling. Of course, saying that a player or two had a bad game on the weekend isn't even in the same postcode as the disgusting abuses of power we've seen reported in recent years, but it's all part of this game. To cultivate women's football, to keep pushing it up around the world, we have to acknowledge all parts of it and accept that for all the beauty, there are depths of ugliness too. We can change it for the better, but we cannot be afraid to be honest. And then Shane continues with a secondary contributor. Uh, not, Not because they're less but because they're second during the last world cup jessica luther also pondered in the huffington post whether the women's football should follow the pattern of the men's and maybe even secede from fifa uh, she said this fifa's branding for this year's world w- women's world cup also reveals how it thinks of the women who play the slogan for the tournament is dare to shine As Jean Williams, a professor who studies women's sport, told me, that implies that the players themselves haven't been bold enough to shine before, and FIFA is giving them the platform. But actually, the structural inequalities are such that a lot of women don't ever get to shine. I think there's only been 36 countries playing at a Women's World Cup out of the 211 FIFA member associations. Uh, Those two from Jessica Luther. Before that, from Sophie Lawson, all in an email from Shane Thomas.
2: I, I would take a little bit of issue with reading anything into any slogan for any tournament. And I, that sounds that sounds sort of reductive, but I think, so I was at Old Trafford on, on Saturday, and there's been a, a discourse online around the coverage of Ronaldo in light of the rape allegations, which I think is an important conversation to have and is challenging as a journalist, but is, is worth all of us contemplating and considering. And it can be challenging as a journalist because, you are, to an extent, damned either way. That if you mention it, you get a lot of abuse for mentioning it. If you don't mention it, you get a load of abuse for not mentioning it. You don't. You're legally not allowed to shoehorn it in. You can't make repeated reference to something that he, a crime that he's not guilty of. He's not been found guilty of. Um, you have to. We, we are all subject to libel law, but there is a and there, there there has been a rape allegation. There is, I think, an ongoing civil case. Um, it is an important thing to consider when discussing someone who's who's being presented as a hero and who is a hero to lots and lots of people. And in that context, there was a, there's a Nike advert, I think, outside Old Trafford that several people have picked up on as being poorly phrased, and or that might, that isn't particularly sensitive to you know to, vet, to victims of, of to victims of sexual violence. And in the, in, the, in the same in the same vein, I saw someone take issue with the fact that United pay, played Fat Boy Slim after the end of the game. I get completely that the Nike advert is in poor taste. I think that's absolutely right, and it's something that Nike should should have thought about. Quite clearly, I think th- it struck me that by critiquing United playing Fatboy Fat Boy Slim, they were a maybe giving too much credit, I guess is the right word, to to the or too little credit or whatever to, to the people who choose the music. My guess is they just have a song they want to play, and also the lyrics weren't particularly offensive, even in, the, in even in, the, in that context, in that light. It's just that it's the we've come a long way to death song. Don't know what it's actually called. Um, if anything, it made no sense because United and Ronaldo haven't come a long way together. He left twelve years ago. That the the whole point of the story is they've come a long way apart, and I think there is a tendency to read too much into things so that you can use you can use as many sticks as possible to beat people with, rather than just using the correct sticks to beat them with. The Fat Boy Slim song is one. The, the, the idea that FIFA. Had a subtext to their slogan to to a men's or women's World Cup would be another. The, I don't want to sound sort of yeah reductive or dismissive, but they're not thinking about it that much. It just sounds good. Dare to shine makes no sense. It isn't. There's, you, there's no point like parsing it or trying to work it out because there's nothing there. It's just an empty slogan, as all World Cup slogans are. Don't try. It's not the sort of thing that should be subject to literary criticism because it's not valid to me. And it also doesn't feel quite as daft as the She Believes Cup. Mm. Although, Well, that's a, brand, that's a brand, isn't it? That's a brand. She I know, Believes but still, is a brand. But if it's not say, a great name. Yeah, yeah. it's not a great say, name. Oh,
1: dare to shine seems a bit condescending. Then it feels like a rebranding of that particular tournament is also timely.
2: Yes.
0: yes. Uh, Steve, how gratified are you uh, that, uh, that uh, Shane includes that, that section from Sophie Lawson, who completely agrees with you? Relieved. <laughs> okay.
1: Not gratified. Relieved.
0: Uh, Mark Thompson has this Dear man talking about women's football, man talking about women's football, man talking about women's football, a man talking about Jack Reacher. <laughs> Uh, long-time listener first-time emailer i too corresponding about last week's podcast am a man talking about women's football i'm not an expert on it although have followed it for several years i'm trying to remember whether rory has ever made his feelings about cricket known during set piece menu history oh yeah several times
2: no hang on i like this is a myth i like cricket
0: hang on a minute it's 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 not having a go at you it's just merely you
2: you two are you two constantly sort so i like cricket just because I don't like rugby doesn't mean I also don't like cricket. He's rejecting all those sports
0: that he was marginalised from during his very posh Yorkshire upbringing.
2: The other sport I don't like is golf.
0: I'm trying to remember whether Rory has ever made his feelings about cricket known. He has now, Mark, during Seppi's Menu history because it struck me that he seemed to be pushing for domestic women's football to do their own version of The 100. City-based teams, a central draft system, altering minor rules of the game just enough to annoy traditionalists. I think that it's a broadly a fair point to question whether women's football needs to replicate men's football in its entirety but I also think it's worth making a few counterpoints. You mentioned the summer calendar that the WSL briefly used and the reasons why they moved back to a winter schedule while the equivalent of the League Cup also has a different format both are examples of slightly different things being tried out they also think a move away from the current array of teams and clubs should be avoided women's football in england has lost a lot to history whether it be the 50-year ban by the fa from 1921 to 1971 where women's teams weren't allowed to use fa pitches or teams like doncaster rover's bells and sunderland getting left behind by the tides of finance it'd be a shame to lose the wsl's 10-year history now that it has built it up equally though it would be a shame if the women's game was more strictly tied to the men's teams in the second tier like lewis whose men's team is in non-league football or durham totally independent of a men's side would suddenly vanish from from view whereas now for the moment they stand a chance of competing at a relatively high level but still more equitable revenue sharing and stricter salary caps could be tried out, although the balance is more difficult than in US sports because players can choose to play in good leagues abroad. Anyway, it's a difficult challenge, not least reading this email through to the end. If you've done so, I think you deserve to give yourself Buffalo status, if that's the thing you can give yourselves. All the best uh, from Mark Thompson. Mark, I have more power than just dishing out Buffalo status to myself. I've tattooed it on the inside of my eyelids. Um, On a similar note from Adam Bremner, who you'll remember is uh, a correspondent with a very nice pool and backyard in Long well, he's our New barbecue
1: York. correspondent, isn't Yeah, he? that's
0: right. Dear Rugby Union, Rugby League, Handball and Aussie rules. Read the pros and cons of women's teams being tied to men's teams. Just look at the US NWSL. Best national team in the world over the past 10 to 15 years, but the domestic league is a disaster. Just Google to see issues with players changing in temporary rooms and not being paid by owners. And it was just announced mm. that the season-ending grand final is going to be played at 9am on the West Coast on an Astraturf field. It's like we're 12-year-olds, said one of the players. These clubs are all independent from the men's teams, each of whom are worth Hundreds of millions of dollars. I think the women's teams would all like a big brother club for now. Uh, so from Adam and before him, Mark Thompson.
2: I think the for now is probably probably really relevant there. That that if that's what it if that's what it takes to mean that the women get proper facilities, they get proper proper access to expertise, that the 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 kind of finances of it all worked, then then it makes sense. I I suspect they could be wrong that that. Mark Thompson is at every team underscore Mark on Twitter, who produces some really interesting kind of analytic analytic stuff on both men's and women's football. Uh, he has a newsletter that's very interesting uh, and is worth a follow to SPM listeners. If it's not that Mark Thompson, I'm sure the other Mark Thompson's fine as well. The um, but just
1: just do a search for all Mark Thompsons on Twitter. Just and find pick a, a handful to follow.
2: Just, just find a Mark Thompson that you like. I think there's a Mark Thompson who might be. Um, chief exec or something of New York Times' parent company. He's great, too. He's a lovely fella. <laughs> he's
1: definitely he's, the best one. like I him a lot. His name's on your cheque, is it, on your the,
2: uh, Ultimately, his name is on my paycheck, so you couldn't... I mean, some great analytics stuff, men's and women's game as well. Maybe they're the same person. Who knows? Maybe there's only one Mark Thompson.
0: That is the, the former BBC director general. Though,
2: yeah, not, yeah. He, he's probably left, actually. I don't really understand what happens to the, the main company anyway. <laughs> But I think what when this Mark Thompson, whichever Mark Thompson it is, is right, is that it would the, the, to me that it's the chance to do stuff that's a little bit different. That I think is being, and he's right. The twenty two Cup is a different format, um, but they could be experimenting with different formats. The leads they could be thinking about kind of what makes it, what might work better in the context that women's football is currently in. That's how you grow It's by having a um, having a, a sort of dynamic. Different competition, effectively. So, so it was great that this weekend, after after the podcast, in, maybe inspired by our words, that Spurs beat Man City. That's that that is really important that that happens for women's football. The fact that Everton have now been stuffed twice in in two weeks, less great, but they have played City and Chelsea. Um, it suggests the gap is still there. But you need, yeah, I feel that there is maybe. It's the, the blind sort of following of the, that, that is the structure of the men's game. So that is the, the way that it has to work in the women's. I, I just find that hard to understand.
0: Uh, there will be those who uh, make the point about Spurs beating Manchester City because of a handball. And that goes back to a point that we made last week about uh, a goal that was offside um, and a point that we didn't actually get around to making about how VAR should be introduced uh, to the women's game. Um, as a suggestion of parity at the very least, uh, but also because, as we all know, If you have VAR, you hate it, and if you haven't got VAR, you really want it. And next to Mike King, dear Snoopy, Woodstock, Charlie Brown, and Peppermint Patty. I've been a listener since a friend first recommended your podcast to me in 2019, as he knew I was moving to Didsbury and liked football. I quote, this podcast is great, they talk sense about football, and they're always going on about Didsbury. He was not wrong on either count, and since then I've enjoyed many a nuanced discussion on football, and had some great recommendations of places to eat, get coffee from, buy hardware, or avoid, in my local area. However, although I've listened for a while, I've never felt the need to write in until now. Uh, What's prompted this was the great discussion in SPM 247 on women's football. I'll be honest, I certainly wouldn't consider myself an expert, and although there were many excellent points made, I think a potential issue was missed. Rory suggested that given the comparatively low cost for clubs of competing in the WSL at a high standard, that it would be possible for teams such as West Ham or Newcastle to invest a relatively small sum and be able to succeed at the very highest level in the sport. Indeed, this is something that Everton are attempting this season. Oops. He made the point that Manchester City and Chelsea currently dominate the WSL in the same way that they do the Premier League, and this is not good for the sport, which I agree with and that someone else spending the money to invest in the same way Lyon have in France would benefit the whole league, which again makes sense. However, this misses one important point that for clubs such as Manchester City, PSG and to a lesser extent Chelsea, money is unimportant and status within football, whether in the men's or women's games, matters more. The fact that these clubs have almost limitless resources surely means that they can do the same thing in the women's game that they have done in the men's and that ultimately any team trying to compete with them will eventually be outmuscled financially. I just thought this was a point worth it making. Uh, it's a point, I think, Mike, that we did make, and if we made it to not enough of an extent that you don't remember it, I apologise, or we made it in a point that I edited out, I apologise. <laughs> um, just quickly, on an unrelated note, loving the new merch, but really think there is a gap in your range given Rory's disdain for rugby union surely this could adorn a mug or a t-shirt Agreed. i would have nothing better than to drink out of a mug that fully demonstrated my withering contempt for this most hideous of all sports keep up the good work mike in sunny today at least disbury
2: i agree let's have an anti-rugby mug let's have anti-rugby t-shirts let's let people let's let people see it from the rooftops what a dreadful sport rugby union is
0: it would have to be over a picture of you though rory because no. neither stephen nor i nor andrew hinchcliffe subscribe to that uh, that opinion
1: Oh, I don't know. I, I'm fairly supportive of it. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, two. Steve's two, always two got my two back. against two. That's. I mean, fine. I'm, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. Uh, Mike also raises an interesting point that perhaps we should spend more time talking about Didsbury because during lockdown and whilst we've been speaking to each other more often on Zoom, we've not really been getting out there, enjoying a cappuccino or I'd be, half a lager top.
2: I would be. Um. I'd <laughs> be. I'd be in, in favour of seeing each other again to be no, honest it's,
0: really, it's, t- it's <laughs> taking you this long to, to come around to that idea I think
2: I think now I am after nearly two years away from you all I am ready to spend time with you in person I tell you what we will come and meet you at the border we'll escort you through the gates we'll we could do a, we, could, we could do a podcast in Barnoldswick. is that is, exa- is
0: that equidistance is
2: it Barnoldswick is the town that has the white and the red roses it's badge as it keeps some? Um, I think half of it's in Yorkshire half of it's in Lancashire uh, then we will meet there
0: for, as Stephen suggested, half a lager top. Uh, finally, David van Der Heer, who says this. Dear Blackadder, Percy, George and Baldrick. Uh, spurred on by the fact that any email about your merch stands a high chance of being read out on the show, I've devised the following cunning scheme. Nice. <laughs> I, I've had my eye on a buffalo shirt ever since you first published them. But I have to say, it would not feel right to wear it without actually being a buffalo. No,
2: also actually, that's a lead on.
0: Following the vaguely established rules from an earlier episode, I'm currently one featured email short of being bestowed buffalo status. So here is my cutting plan in which we all end up winners. Step one, you feature this email on the pod. Step two, I get buffalo status. Step three, I buy a shirt. Step four, profit. Optional step five, spend your profits at a Michelin star restaurant, or indeed Waitrose if you are Rory or indeed Smith. Easy, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, my conscience would never allow me to do this. Getting Buffalo status this way would just cheapen the whole thing. So instead I propose the following. My friend and two-time contributor, Yep Smates, remember him? Oh yes. He's celebrating his birthday on September the 8th when the next episode drops. Sorry, David, didn't get the email in time. And I will buy him a shirt regardless of Buffalo status. Now, if you decide to read this whole thing out and bestow Buffalo status on either of us, that's another two shirts. Once again, thank you so much for the fantastic pod. Kind regards, David. Um. How do we feel about people buying Buffalo status on account of the fact that it will guarantee us the very small profit margin we get on the Tuesday? It,
2: it, f- it makes me think of access to members of the royal family. <laughs> and that if it's okay for them, it's okay for us. Cash for questions, I say. Let's give them Buffalo status.
0: Okay, both of you, congratulations, although this is not a precedent-setting moment, I might uh, repeat. Now, Why if not? they're buying... Well, if they're buying one each... That is the first level, and it has been breached and met. So from now on, after Yep and uh, David manage to get themselves Buffalo status by buying one T-shirt each, the next needs to be two. Mm, okay. And then it'll be three. He I have a really point
2: is to make the here. Prince Charles of this operation. I have a point to make here. Let's just hope that none of us is Prince Andrew. The, <laughs> the Dutch for Buffalo is either buffalo, which makes sense, or, and I like this, Kaabao, 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 Um That might be like boer or something. It might be South like South African Dutch. Uh, don't know, would quite like to have a t-shirt with buffalo in Dutch for them. I think that feels like the sort of thing we should do.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know Thanks. if that's something that we can at all manage Speak up.
2: Speak to the marketing department.
0: Correspondence of any kind to menu at gmail.com. Now, without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. Given that football is a religion for many, the reference is suitable, if meaningless for anyone under the age of 50. There are a good many footballing traditions that retain their value, but there are even more that have been diluted or indeed have simply disappeared over the years. This could be for a number of reasons. Certain readers of certain daily publications might say it's because all modern things are terrible. Uh, But there is doubtless a changing financial and social landscape in which football's traditions might not quite sit so comfortably. Take, for example, the Saturday football blackout in the UK. Yes, I remember to mention it. Established in order to protect tenancies on what is, yes, the traditional time for football matches in this country. But is it still something worth fighting for? Has the proliferation of media and football on TV and especially made it as relevant? So how fiercely should we preserve tradition, even if it seems anachronistic? That wording of that question beautifully uttered on a WhatsApp message by Stephen Wise,
1: It's probably no coincidence that this sort of stuff came up during the course of an international break, because that is when a lot of football's navel-gazing takes place. It does, though, feel like we're going to get an increased conflict over traditions that have, have in the main, served football well. And this clamour for modernisation and monetisation that often... Through self-interest, many feel to be necessary. The, the World Cup every two years is one of the things that's been talked about increasingly over the course of the last couple of weeks. The the other one, the afternoon blackout of televised football in the UK, a bit more preocule, a bit more acute, but I don't think any of the less important in the grand scheme of things. I think it's slightly depressing that, that another aspect of, of the game is being viewed through the prism of one of its megastars, this time Ronaldo, because... That is ultimately what's brought this conversation to the surface, the fact that people in the UK couldn't watch his re-debut for Manchester United. That uh, That is cause enough for some to sort of view the blackout now as an, as an anachronism that should be dispensed with. And it is in many ways sort of nonsensical that, that those in the UK can't watch a three o'clock game in the Premier League legally. But the reason for that restriction and and the the reason it's in place hasn't really changed since it was introduced in the nineteen sixties. So it does feel a bit like a test conversation for how much we're willing to sacrifice tradition for modernisation and and whether we're ready for the implications. Because yes, younger fans, they will probably want they they might see the blackout as trivial. They might quite like the idea of a World Cup every two years. But if those sorts of things happen, that then what's next?
2: I'm a bit sick of the tyranny of youth if i'm completely honest like, it <laughs> feels a bit like that like in culture in, in general like everything we do is all, teenagers don't like it for a long time i i don't want to offend younger listeners the world didn't give a sh- about what teenagers thought and that was kind of the point point. <laughs> people are getting older rory in, in other aspects of like
1: in terms of like when you retire pensionable age all that stuff we're constantly the population's getting older you know it's just it's unsustainable people stop living so long yeah but then also by the way we're only going to take into account the views of this very small minority well uh, I, and I, funnily enough they, they don't are have no disposable te- income
0: they are no longer teenagers after the age of 19 so literally for six years of their lives that's it and then they no, can't be contributing to this conversation anymore. So why it, do we? But now we're back to those people who enjoy certain daily publications
2: uh, printed on paper. But it, it it feels it feels like a glib thing to say, and I, I don't mean it as that. But yeah, like teenagers are teenagers, and like I'm not saying they're not valid people, but there's a there's <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason that culture has never been geared towards that particular cohort, and it's because teenagers generally are rebelling against. Their, the, the previous generation—that's how it works. That's that's kind of what, what's meant to happen, and we're not like meant to understand their culture, and we shouldn't try. And, well, we should try and kind of appreciate their culture, but we're not. We're not. We can't kind of be part of it because it is in itself a reaction to us, and so I think that to an extent, trying to kind of gear everything so that teenagers like it is just—it's just—it's kind of a wild goose chase. That whatever you do, they'll do something different because they're teenagers. What teenagers do, and I find it—I find it odd, particularly in a football context. How little faith people seem to have in football that Andrea Agnelli's constantly banging on about oh you know well you know there's Netflix now and Infantino's worried about it and Seferin I think came out and said something about um you know we need to we, we, we're facing a battle with Fortnite or whatever I don't know um and Wenger himself who's behind this two world cup to this biennial world cup plan is part of his rationale is that young people don't have the attention spans for four football matches. I don't want to surprise Arsene Wenger who's a very nice man a very wise man but kids have never watched full football matches because kids can't sit still for 90 minutes they're kids that was true of our generation and it was probably true of Arsene Wenger's generation and no one suggested changing the game because to keep their attention what what's much easier and cheaper is is if those kids just get older that's probably the the natural way of sorting that problem out, and some of them will appreciate the sport. And there are ways you might be able to change it, and you know, game clock might be better than playing ninety minutes or whatever. But ultimately, they're, they're only going to be teenagers for a bit. And I find it really surprising that that football itself, this massive cultural phenomenon, has so little faith in itself and is willing to bend over backwards at all times. Don't worry, Hugh. I'm going to get back to tradition at some point.
0: No, 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 no. I'm, I, the the point I was going to make is, is on the back of that, and that it's, it's is it. And this is this is very um. Uh, sp- a point of great cynicism, but is it because simply that the teenage generation are producing content for themselves, so therefore older um, middle class men who sit in offices and try to pretend that they know what teenagers think and want, that they're going to provide them with content as well and all of it is getting monetized. And that's the difference because the generations before, if you were to change the game, that wouldn't make any difference whatsoever to the potential monetization of the sport. But if you are doing stuff which can be monetized, whether it's bite-sized chunks because of the, the attention span or whether it's just delivered on a different platform, it can all be monetized. You have a global fan base now who is enjoying football in loads and loads of different ways and the football adjacent stuff that we love talking about. That is all enjoyed in so many different ways, in so many different countries, on so many different platforms, and yet it can all be monetized. And so any developments of the game, you will always will you not and maybe it's not as cynical as I thought it was maybe it's actually right there is a, a monetization aspect of all of it advertising rev- revenue for, for mm. FIFA in a world cup shortening games putting them on platforms where you can break it up and have your 15 second ads in between or preceded by 15 second ads like on YouTube all of these things you, they are consumers and the product can be monetized you couldn't do that mm. in the 80s when you were thinking about it couldn't do it in the 60s when Arsene Wenger was growing up these are the differences that actually are being reflected in all these new ideas
1: It's it's a bit like the thing of making radio and TV programs to try and attract the YouTube audience. People are already consuming what they want on YouTube. Are they going to stop watching it on YouTube and, say, listening to it on the radio instead? If we followed that through its its natural course, then goal highlights on the television would have the commentary and atmosphere taken off and just hard techno over the top instead. (laughs) which I don't think would necessarily go down terribly well with the audience. By the way, that is the major bugbear of football commentators, by the way, when you endeavour to find out the correct pronunciation of a a new player to the league's name. You Google them, a YouTube video highlights of them pops up, and you think, excellent, it'll be here with a local commentator saying his voice. And no. Some teenager it's too has replaced this
2: out with... With, loads of, with just a load of EDM. The... But I think traditions do fall into this. That as I'm, I'm basically ambivalent on the, on the, on the three o'clock blackout. I, I get the reasons for it. There was that excellent thread from Dale Johnson oh. at ESPN who laid out a lot of the cases, which taught me a lot of stuff I didn't know. So I didn't know that in the... Bunda- obviously, the background of the blackout is that UEFA stipulates that any country or territory can select two and a half hours over the weekend to say no, no football is allowed to be broadcast now. And the, the whole idea is to protect smaller clubs, lower league clubs, from... Losing walk-up war fans effectively to TV, so you'll go to Ro- Rochdale in the rain. Now there's nothing else to do at three o'clock on a Saturday, but you might not do that if you could watch the Man United Newcastle game um, and stay dry at home. That I think is is sound logic. I'd be interested to know how much how much it would hold if you took it away for say a few weeks would or a season would would it have any real impact? Not sure people still go to concerts, even though you can listen to everything on Spotify. You know, still people still quite like seeing live music. They are prepared to make the effort, and they pay to... a
1: lot of money to do so as
2: well. Yeah, so you, even though you can listen to all the tour limited you want on Spotify, you will go and see Mike and the Mechanics live. <laughs> that is, that is how that works. I am very young and and hip, as you can tell. The so I, I don't know what, I don't know whether some of the dangers are are a little bit theoretical but equally i can understand why people about, don't why people don't want to find out
0: yes and dale uh, dale johnson on that thread i think he talked about the fact that it would be habit forming and so yeah. trying it for yeah. a short period of time might be damaging simply for that reason rather than it being in of itself yeah a bad thing
2: but well, equally I, Ed, as steve will know better than i do lots of other countries have their own versions of it what i didn't realize but learned from dale's thread is that in germany where they have the the bundesliga kind of goals show effectively at 3.30 on a, on a Saturday and it feels like oh this is great because that's how you should be able to consume football it seems like a happy, a happy halfway house where the games themselves are not broadcast live but you can see the goals as they go in that's a that's a good idea but they, that's only possible because no other league kicks off at the same time as the Bundesliga they have their window so it is all of the the vie the or the, the regional leader is not trying to compete with those with watching Bayern Munich stick four past Leipzig it's that's a Bundesliga slot, and everyone else fits around it. That is an idea that I think might be worth exploring in England, but equally, it gets it has the same the same ultimate impact, which is that three o'clock on a Saturday is not the time that all the football matches kick off. And, and if you if you check, and we
1: can maybe get onto it, other other traditions would suddenly be lost if if we were to do that. Because there is something that seems as though, and I think Dale mentioned it in that that thread on Twitter, that is relatively, if not not entirely unique to English football, which is the sheer depth and Mm. volume of football that kicks off simultaneously at three o'clock. You're talking about at least 10 tiers worth of football that traditionally is in that time slot. You're talking from the elite level of the game down to us going to watch West Didsbury and Chilton in, in the northern... I can't even remember. It's so far. I keep forgetting <laughs> what flipping division they play in. In the 10th tier of England... The, the North West Counties League is... Division, is, is, Premier, is, is One, up, up, upper, yeah. upper. It's the 10th tier. They're, they're nine promotions away from the Premier League, but they are kicking off at the same time as the majority of Premier League and Championship matches, which attract huge crowds. Another thing that we don't have, which a lot of the other big leagues across Europe do, for example, is that we have unique individual clubs all the way through that structure. We don't have Premier Leagues under 23 sides playing in the third tier of competition as they do in an awful lot of other big games. So it's it's difficult to compare what happens in England with what happens in some of the other major European leagues, because the depth of the depth of the structure there or the uniqueness of the depth of the structure there is not comparable and and there's
0: so there is a structural tradition which yeah. is the reason for the blackout but that then leads to a cultural tradition which is families going to their local team whether it's big small or West Didsbury and chalton you do you do have that regularity that gives breath to relationships memories all those things that are slightly intangible but have enough value to underpin what is a a procedural, structural, simple rule. And that's 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 the, the conflict.
2: And ultimately really football is a habit. I I remember writing this after after Berry collapsed that the, the risk is that that you lose the people for whom that is what they do at three o'clock on a Saturday. The I I think there are cases where you could we shouldn't 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 kind of insist that all changes the same. So you could, for example, say that championship games will kick off at two o'clock on a Saturday. And that wouldn't really make a huge amount of difference to anybody, ultimately. It, it might make it slightly more... I had this conversation with someone the other day. It might make it slightly more inconvenient for some people to go, but it might actually make it more convenient for other people to go, that there will always be winners and losers in those scenarios. You could potentially play some leads on a Sunday. And that that would be their their slots, and that would free everything up. But I think that the real tradition that the that the three pm blackout gives rise to is that that's when everything kicks off. Yeah. That that is the, and this is yeah. This sounds is quite hard to explain, I suppose. But quite often the team that you support, if you support a Premier League team, isn't playing at three o'clock on a Saturday. And we saw in the in the pandemic year that that. The, a lot of the kind of gloss and sense of occasion of three o'clock on a Saturday was lost because there was, you know, there's Crystal Palace Burnley famously kicking off every week, and then the Championship and League One and League Two. But there was one Premier League game, and it felt like, well, this isn't very interesting. Just I don't care about these two teams, so why should I pay attention? The, there's a weird, like, transubstantiation thing going on that when you have four or five games kicking off at three o'clock, none of which are relevant to your team. It suddenly seems really interesting, and one of the great traditions of English football, although it would never be described as that, is sitting in your house at four thirty and putting on, yeah. you know, final score or Soccer Saturday or the best of them all, BT Sports Score. Um, although they stopped using journalists, so maybe it's not, maybe it's not that good anymore. Um, and or you know, coming home from a game or being in the pub and watching the scores flick through and that sort of general silence of of seeing the Vidi printer tick over or the music for sports report on five live which is mm. you know an integral part of british sport sporting culture but, bizarrely. But, but how many
0: teenagers feel that though
2: well i don't know but, but again, does but it, it, it doesn't
0: matter no but um, that's what i'm saying this is this is why the conversations take place in the first place is because there will be those questions asked yes but they might g- be being asked by the wrong people at the wrong wrong time and considering and supplanting their own views onto other people and not necessarily canvassing particularly successfully but the reason that the question is asked is because somebody sits in a meeting Meeting, uh, and they say to themselves, yeah, but does do, does my, do my kids do that? Or, you know, well, do teenagers do that?
1: You grow, in that? It, you grow into the... tradition. Oh,
0: no, because, don't, you, you don't, I you know, but I'm not positing it as my opinion. I'm merely throwing that grenade into the conversation so yeah, that you understand yeah, yeah. why these conversations
2: are taking place. He, Steve is right to be outraged and flabbergasted, because if you're sitting in your swanky W1A meeting room thinking, my kids aren't watching Final Straw, maybe you should be watching Final Straw with your kids. But also there's this danger of, of grouping teenagers into one homogenous or teenagers, you're an adult, whatever, into one generation Z into one homogenous mass. There will be loads of kids who who don't can't be asked streaming illegally, who don't desperately want to spend all of their all of their Saturday afternoon watching a, a, a whole match to stream it illegally, which by the way is a is a logical fallacy. Because you're saying that we're worried that teenagers don't have the the attention span to watch an entire 90 minutes, but also we're worried that they have to be able to watch 90 minutes of football. Maybe final score is quite a good way of getting them to absorb football because it, it all happens at once. and it, There's always something happening. It's, it, there's lots of great drama. You can't see any of it, but we saw, during again, during the pandemic year, that being able to watch every single second of football doesn't make you think the football's any better. It exposes you to a lot of football that you don't care about emotionally, that you're not bonded to, that you're not that interested in, and you might get a bit bored of. But ultimately, Steve, Steve is right. You grow into tradition. You develop it as you get older, you develop it through through your, because that's what your parents do, or that's what your brother or sister does, or whatever. And it's whatever aspirational.
0: It you want to do it because your dad took you, or your dad wanted and, to show you, and you want to become your father in some sort of way.
2: Yeah, that will not hold for yours, by the way. It doesn't hold. It doesn't That, that bit definitely doesn't hold anymore.
1: Well, well, firstly, I'd like to accept the credit from Rory on my excellent parenting skills because George, my seven-year-old, did sit and watch Final Score with me very recently. or He will sit and watch anything on television, but he did sit and watch Final Score. <laughs> so I'm taking it as a win. The other thing that, that's come up there is the idea of maybe moving fixtures around a little bit more to further accommodate that idea that people will go out and watch their local club at three o'clock and I, and I think that is there is a compelling discussion to be had about whether you could say well, look, let, let's have no Premier League games at three o'clock you've got a Friday night match you've got a Monday night match you could have a couple at lunchtime you mm-hmm. can have the bulk of Saturday's games at 5.30 and retain the, the idea of a Super Sunday that would be relatively manageable but that again would break from the the tradition of having a situation where you've got elite clubs and those further down the pyramid all playing at the same time. And if you're sat mm-hmm. watching, well, you sat watching, I don't think if, if you stopped having Premier League football at three o'clock, you wouldn't have the BBC, Sky and BT Sport all investing heavily in a score service programme at that time. So you would lose that thing of, there's been a goal at Old Trafford. Cristiano Ronaldo has scored on his return for Manchester United. Oh, there's also been a goal at Scotland, and Rochdale are leading 1-0. Yeah, yeah. We have that thing at full time where we all have a chuckle about East 5-4, 4 5. You know, those scores all coming in together give football that that community and that continuity. And it gives you that sense that wherever football is being played at that time, it is just as important to followers of the big clubs as it is to the small clubs. And it's that one moment a week where they get to see their team's names mentioned in close proximity to, to the very top clubs. And I always used to think that was something when I worked in local radio that was great about reading out the full time scores. Is it gave you an opportunity to get around the parish, to mention all of the different it was the only time in the week on BBC Manchester where you would mention a lot of the places that otherwise <laughs> miss you them, wouldn't miss them. <laughs> I thought you were gonna can
0: you remember them all off the top of your
1: head yes, then. Here and we go then. that was a big gap. <laughs> <Are you laughs> <laughs> Jinx, just go, just go through it. But, but so it is. It, it gives football that Kersal Ashton, that collaborative. Well, let's not fill a pod. Let's not fill a pod with all of the non-league sides in the Greater Manchester Tameside area. We're not even going to add <laughs>
2: Tameside in. Bridge. I think Yes, Steve's completely right. That it's it is important that football is able to change, and football is is very small seat conservative because we all feel ownership over the game. That is this great collective endeavor, this thing that unites you know people across borders, across languages, across the, across continents. But equally, we perceive it in our own special way. So there's certain, and normally that's quite a nostalgic way that we remember it. As you know, we complain that you know you're not allowed to tackle anymore. because we remember when you were allowed to tackle? But there'll be a generation who grow up, who are you know our age in twenty years time, or whatever, who don't remember when you're allowed to tackle, and they'll see brutal tackles and think, well, what the hell is that? That's that is clearly not the sort of thing that should be allowed. That there will be. We all feel our exact kind of circumstances are the purest form of experience in the game, and that tends to mean that any change, just change necessarily, comes from the outside, is unwelcome. So it's part partly why we don't like VAR. It's partly why we don't like the change in the offside rule. It's partly why we, you know, we maybe resent the rise of certain clubs or the fall of others. Is that we feel as though football should be? You hear? I can't remember who I heard it about. It may have been Man United. It might have been Arsenal. I heard someone say, you know, the, the Premier League's better if there's a strong Arsenal. Is it? Does that matter? I don't know if it matters. It just and in some 30,
0: clubs. Yes, and in 30 years' time that will have absolutely no relevance if Arsenal yeah. aren't very good for the next thirty but all, years. It'll be but also, like the this same is, argument about Manchester City or Chelsea. Yeah.
2: But then this isn't meant to be like a did at Arsenal, but like Arsenal's history is quite um ebb and flowy. Like the biggest team in the country in the thirties, basically nothing for 40 years, massive team in the seventies, nothing for ten, big team in the nineties. And then now they're kind of they're basically mid table team now. And Arsenal, are a huge club, the biggest club in, in England. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's it's there's no there's no historical evidence that English football needs Arsenal to be strong to thrive. That just isn't true. But because the people making those calls and saying those things remember when Arsenal were massive, it's like well you, you need Arsenal to be strong. It's better when Arsenal. I think that I think it's better when Arsenal are strong, but I don't. I don't think historically it's true. And the danger is that that loyalty to to how things used to be for us and assuming that that is the right way, that that is the natural order of things, that can blind us to change. But at the same time, some traditions might be right and we have to have, as a football culture, enough courage in our convictions to say, do you know, and this is a point Jonathan Wilson made, I did a blizzard thing last week with him, the penalty spot where the penalty spot is someone just decided at some point there was no committee there was no science done there no analytics performed on where the penalty shot sh- spot should be they just put it there but it's the perfect spot it is the absolutely perfect spot for where a penalty should be does it makes it likelier than not that you'll score but it's not it's not a gimme it works perfectly there's no reason to change where the penalty spot is and there's quite a lot of stuff like like that in football you don't need to change it it works pretty well on its own and those are the traditions that i think we do have to cherish and it may well be that the 3pm blackout for all that it is illogical in a in a world of sound like house and now like immediate satisfaction and total saturation and where you can see everything all of the time it is a bit of a, a of an outlier a bit of a kind of discrepancy but maybe it works and, and that it shouldn't be changed just because it feels old-fashioned. Some old-fashioned stuff might be quite a good thing. On the point about Arsenal, well, the top flight of English football, or English
1: football as a whole, survived Manchester United not winning the title and not being very good for 27 years. So it can certainly navigate a path through the carnage of Arsenal having a, a drop-off in level. Ha- for having point. to finish eighth yes. for a bit. I, I think yeah. we'll be okay, guys. And then the other thing about the blackout which maybe people don't realise and if if they do then they are in some ways even more frustrated about this aspect of it is it also applies to showing overseas football. It's not just English. It's not just you can't show a Premier League game at three o'clock. The same applies to any football being played anywhere in the world at that time. It deprives
0: time. us of 15 minutes of Wyeth on occasion.
1: It certainly does. Very recently deprived you of 15 minutes of Wyeth when we had to join Napoli versus Juventus in play after 15 minutes because that game kicked off at 5 o'clock in the afternoon UK time now look for, from a commentator's point of view from the production of that from what we were doing same, fr- same fee for the commentator's point of view thank you very much <laughs> it's, look it's frustrating you want to give it it's a huge game you want to give it the big build up you want to be there for the kickoff. you want to describe the early action to the audience but it feels as though a sacrifice worth making if clubs further down the pecking order in across Britain Survive because we don't show the first fifteen minutes of Napoli Juventus. Yes, I'd have loved to if it to have been on air, and I had a very cordial and interesting discussion with someone on social media about it afterwards, who felt like it was utterly ridiculous. The point they made was that they just went down to a betting shop and watched the game down there instead. And then they they wandered home and watched the, the conclusion of it on BT Sport, and that's fine. There are there are ways around it, in the same way as there are numerous people who managed to watch Manchester United versus Newcastle by less than legal means. But if making it a little bit more difficult for people to to get that football helps other smaller clubs survive and if it means that somebody like me might say do you know what I am going to take the kids down the road to watch the local team because the 20-30 quid we spend down there on that Saturday afternoon will make all the difference to them because I can tell you that Rory and George aren't going to be dragged out in the cold and drizzle to watch 10th tier football if PSG are
2: on the telly and they can watch Messi on a Saturday
1: afternoon, it's a it's
2: a much harder sell. Uh, that's that's really interesting. That is my my instinct would have been certainly. I think you could you'd probably get away with saying right the, the blackout ends at five. There's no re- there's no reason at all for it to be five fifteen. That makes no sense. You could you you could run the blackout from two forty five to five o'clock, and it wouldn't be an issue. Or even just three o'clock till five o'clock. The games are done by five. Don't worry about it. And I think until until relatively recently, you could have made the case, or I might have made the case that. Um, that you could make exceptions for foreign footballers. I don't, I, I don't think realistically that Rochdale or Oldham or whoever are going to lose crowds because Real Madrid are on. I think that's, those, are, those are different demographics. Probably not, Rory. That is one thing that has changed in the last 15, 20 years, which is as kids and Steve's kids are, are great examples of this. They are much more familiar with PSG and Real Madrid and Barcelona than they will be with, with Plymouth Argyle. They they will ha- have as much interest in seeing Messi or Ronaldo, oh, not Ronaldo now, but Messi and Di Maria and Neymar, as or Pedri as they do in seeing Ian Jenkinsop playing for Doncaster. He's it's not really great. There's no football in Ians anymore. There's no football in Gary's, Ians or uh, Keiths, and I think we are. Jim is responsible, Rory, for the most chances created
1: in the division so far this season. <laughs> Unfortunately, he doesn't have a good striker to take advantage of
2: those. Opportunities. That's, the, that's the issue. But no, so
0: There's I, a problem I, with uh, Ian's to the extent that uh, the Manchester City youth product and then went to, I can't remember who, Ian Pervader is actually Jan Paveda. So Oh, is that um, right? Is it, even, it Jan? Even, yeah, even, yeah. even the, the Ian isn't an
2: Ian. Jan Carlo Pervader. You don't know how many... I, I mean, Ian Carlo is a weird name. Anyway, the... So, but for, so for kids, I think that is that is absolutely right, that if you put PSG on at three o'clock, they wouldn't want to go and watch, much less West Didbury, Disbury and Charlton, they wouldn't want to go and watch Plymouth because they know the people, that, that is the team off FIFA. Where I stop short is thinking that any of those kids are going to watch a 90-minute match involving anyone because kids don't have attention spans. They are kids. Uh, it's
0: interesting yeah. that, we, that we expect kids to have Attention spans, or, or we're debating kids' attention spans about how much football that they should be watching on television on a Saturday afternoon. When I'm sure there was a discussion, and there will be an ongoing discussion amongst everybody about the idea that kids shouldn't be spending Saturday afternoons watching anything; they should be spending Saturday afternoons outside
2: playing and playing it would, football. <laughs> it would, that I mean, that that is then turning this into like a massive cultural thing about like how we parent you and i think none of us are prepared for that
0: <laughs> no because we'd all we'd all come out not necessarily smelling of roses i just want to finish mm. the conversation by steve mentioned the word anachronistic um in in his setting up of this and i think that there may well be some anachronisms that we do think are subject or could be subject to change but if we were to even if, even if we feel like they're completely outdated and they need to go the replacement for them or the change will still be because of the way that football is resistant to change certainly from outside as you mentioned Rory as all change is is that you just look at VAR because VAR attempted to deal with an anachronism which was the old set blatter thing football is played by humans and so the referees should be making human decisions and all that sort of stuff that you trotted out before he became uh, an advocate for it there is a difficulty in changing even the kind of things that everybody agrees should change
2: but that's because we all want the change to be instituted in the way that we perceive because our perceptions of the game are individual. So you bring in VAR and to me that means you have to do, you don't do toenail off sides and you don't do this and you don't do that. But to Steve it might mean something completely different and it'll, to you it will mean something completely different again. We all feel the game so personally that any change is seen basically on, mm-hmm. on is, is taken as an attack on our own perception of this game. That is That is the glory of football but it's what makes it so difficult to change. It's why when you present what feel to you like perfectly sensible ideas, maybe this, maybe Arsene and vendors got a bit of this at the moment as well. Things that you, that as you perceive it will make things infinitely better. Lots of people come back to you and say, well, no, 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 that doesn't work. Does this, this, and this, and this. And sometimes they just come back and say, no, 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 that won't work because you're a <laughs> but basically... But that's the thing, isn't it? You don't
0: get you don't get a oh yeah maybe that will work because very rarely the, the conversations within football are of always of extremes. So you well, me, you,
2: to be fair, you will. I mean, I, I certainly find on the rare, relatively rare occasions that I try and suggest something that you will get people saying, "I like that idea, but this is the problem," and that's totally legitimate. You have to workshop these things. You get a lot of like, "Who are you to say this?" or you know, "You're only saying that because this, this, and this," or "You never paid to, to go to football, so what do you know?" and it's because we all perceive our football as the right football. And that, goes, that cuts through with other things. So that's what part of the reason why, why match-going fans regard themselves as being more of a fan than someone in Tokyo who's waking up at three in the morning to watch a football match, that, that their experience of football is the correct, the pure form of football. And nobody else's is true, is, somebody else's might be legitimate, but it's not as legitimate. And that makes change basically impossible to institute. And that, in a lot of ways, holds football back. But at the same time, there are certain things that maybe shouldn't be changed.
0: And, if, and if, if football is seen to be trying to cultivate a group of fans that is not you, the, the, the fan, group of fans that you feel that like you subscribe to, that, that's what gives rise to the fury. So, for example, talking about all the, all the ways that football is attempting to monetize not only the, the platforms but the global audience that it has and the access that that global audience can have to those platforms is that you have, for example, a match-going fan... Who is feeling marginalized because the club, just as an example, is attempting to monetize a product that the global fan will benefit from that mm-hmm. is that is a, a, a something that gives rise to to all that non nuanced debate that we just spoke about. How dare you concentrate on that fan when i 'm higher yeah. up in the hierarchy? I am more important, and you should be focusing on me mm. and that's
1: part, that, and that 's another aspect of why the argument about well, you can watch the three o 'clock kick off anywhere other than North Korea, what else was it, Cuba?
2: Turkmenistan.
1: Turkey, and the UK. Yeah, but that's because that's, that's trying to monetize the global audience. Just because you can watch the game early on in the morning in New York doesn't mean you have to be able to watch the game in Manchester. Mm. Because the reasons that you can watch the game in New York but not in Manchester are, are quite clear for everybody to see.
2: Equally, in the US, as, um, I I'm going to do this again... Local, mar- <laughs> how local- are you going
1: to say that?
2: Local markets are blacked out. I they saw are. a tweet the tweet the other day from from a-, a Jets fan, I think, saying that the only reason he lives in New York is just that's the one place in America you can't watch the Jets play. <laughs> Which is a great line, but yeah, that everyone you have to you have to protect. But the other thing we've not touched on at all is that the re- the other reason for protecting this is because the whole edifice of f- football, and we saw this again during the pandemic, is built on the fans being there. So you have to protect. We should know now more than ever before. You have to protect atmospheres in stadiums. They yeah. are central to it. So, you—if the, the cost of that is that you can't watch it on at three pm live, watch the occasional game live, then then that's the price you have to pay. The other thing I'd say is that Match of the Day is an, is, is a crucial a crucial tradition in English football that presumably cuts across generations. Because guess what? You don't have to have an attention span to watch it. And you can watch it on that, so maybe that helps another side of the of of, of the game that does that does bond people across generations.
0: You, you do need attention span to get as far as Steve's game, which is something that uh, we spoke about All earlier. Right, easy now. <laughs> well, if, if Rory does it, then I do it. That's fair. That's balanced. I'm balance. willing to let it slide once. Are you willing to let it slide when Rory said it? But uh, no, if you, you have gone first, then very little respect. respect. <laughs> <laughs> It
1: was whoever who, it's, it's, always, it's always second person in who gets the red card, You, <laughs> That's true. But there, there is,
0: uh, I'm going to draw those two little strands together, Roy, because you mentioned about fans in the NFL local market, well, the the, the American local market blackout. That blackout is lifted if the stadium that is hosted yes. a certain, yeah. r- reaches a certain capacity. So they understand that the two go together. If you, I, I don't know if it's 75%, I've got that in my mind for some reason, but if it's above 75%, but imagine that if it's a sellout, as an arbitrary suggestion, if, it, if that stadium is sold out, then you can then release it to a local, local television market. So that's, but they obviously have it on terrestrial television over there. They have it on the network. So it's easy for people to be able to make that decision. It's not, you don't need a subscription on top of that to then to be able to watch the game, regardless of whether it's blacked out or not.
1: I remember back in my early days at Radio Manchester... Uh, the Joylston, commentary, the, the commentary deal, The commentary deal with Manchester City, they couldn't commentate on the home games until it was declared a sellout.
2: There is one other thing that I think we should raise just on the subject of the the Ronaldo incident and the fact that 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 game of all games wasn't broadcast on TV. I suspect what it means is that particularly after transfer windows television companies will not be making that same mistake again and that those TV slots in the weekends immediately after the closures of the transfer window or even the weekends during the transfer window will be reserved even more than they are at the moment for the big teams just in case you have a a situation at the end of January or the end, you know, the end of August next year, where Liverpool have made a, a late signing or Arsenal have made a late signing or Spurs or City or whoever, and it's not scheduled to be a TV a TV game. They will not want to repeat. You will never get another one of the same scale as Ronaldo, but they, they will not want to repeat of Erling Haaland's first game for Man City not being on television.
1: And and that will be a case of you reap what you sow. You can't complain about your team kicking off in a unfavorable time slot for you to be able to attend the game if you're also going to complain yeah. about them kicking off at three o'clock in the afternoon because now you can't watch it
0: so now in the absence of a chinch soccer story we have something about chinch it comes from two of many emails that we've had on this subject uh the first from alan Shepard, not the astronaut and the second from kevin o'sullivan not the college baseball coach googled it um alan begins and he will morph into kevin dear guppy froggart powell and hinchcliffe Can I draw your attention to some shameful slander of Chinch's good name on the 2nd of September edition of the Totally Football Show? 43 minutes in and the panel are recalling David Beckham's England debut against Moldova. A question is posed as to who else made their debut that day, stumping everyone. Clearly no one is following SPM on Twitter. A hint is given that it was a player on the left-hand side and then realisation dawns. Comments are made about this being the period when England would try out anyone on the left-hand side and someone guesses Steve Froggart. Some good news though, when asked how many caps that Chinch won, the guess... It's around 10 or 11. So clearly Chinch made a bigger impression than his seven caps warranted. Kevin then picks up and continues. To James Richardson's question, who is the Andy Hinchcliffe in this current squad? The reply from Duncan Alexander was damning. I don't think there is one really. If you compare England in the mid nineties to now, England have an embarrassment of riches. Personally, I think this is a nonsense and denigrates the fine career of one quarter of your panel who was far better and far more memorable than this uninformed conversation suggests. I'm being very genuine here. Uh, Andy was an excellent player, uh, says Kevin. On a more important note, I also believe that this constitutes the makings of a beef quite appropriately, given your Buffalo bovine obsession, though I am open to correction. Either way, I will look forward to your response. We all live in hope, of course, of open inter-podcast warfare. Something to keep us entertained in these difficult times, you'll understand. Uh, so thank you to Kevin and to Alan and to all, indeed all the others who brought uh, that to our attention too. We're not going to get um, into a podcast beef because um, Rory has already since then been on uh, The Guardian pod mm. and walked out on them, although not necessarily as a show of support for Andy Hinchcliffe.
2: No, I I um I enjoy doing the Guardian pods, just guesting occasionally. You know, it's, it's 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 a good podcast, like Totally as well. I'm, I'm not picky. Um, but I had a man come round who was 15 minutes early. I had a very fine, you know, when, when you've got a really like finely tuned morning, and everything has to work exactly as you've planned it for for there to be for there to be not, nice, you know, for it, for it all to kind of run smoothly. The man who was an excellent um man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he delivered
0: the, the, the man
2: well, I, I don't want to say he what nematis. he's doing I don't want to say what he's doing is it's just so bourgeois but
0: well I know so I'm going to try and force you to say it or I will say it for you
2: we we currently have a quite cold house and winter's setting in and we've we've decided that we're going to replace the open fire in our living room with a gas one and he he was coming around to price the job up basically but he came 15 minutes early and it meant that the last fifteen minutes of the Guardian pod, I had to be talking to uh, the fireman rather than um, Johnny Lou and Faker Others and Max. Uh, and I believe I've not listened to the end of it. It's, it was I'm, I'm really genuinely quite embarrassed about it. Um, but I believe I, I, I received well in fact Steve's just told me I received some abuse from Johnny Lee, which I will, I will as soon as we finish this podcast text him and ask him about
0: keep your correspondence coming
2: to setpiecemenu at gmail.com or if you're Johnny Lou, um then
0: Rory's personal number is 07 also by the merch at tpublic.com uh, just search for Menu at SBM please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find reviews your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening we'll be back with another setpiece menu you enjoy
2: very soon indeed to be fair I'm pretty confident Johnny Lou's not a listener he's gone a little bit he's a little bit big time ever since people like Gary Lineker started praising everything he writes is, is that, so what did he used to listen in now we just no I, I think I think he, he um, I mean he probably isn't that interested in, in what we have to say but he's just you know he's got you know, he's got a PA now he's got like a, he's got assistants you know he's just he, he has his media kind of he's like a manager he'll get like clippings of the media just sent to him where he's mentioned just a, a stream of Gary Lineker and Gary Neville tweets saying brilliant masterpiece all that
1: is he like one of those? Basically, do other people now write his
2: articles for him. He's sort of does he just sort of <laughs> sign them off? I think it's a mixture between a um, a, a team of people, like, like sort of like a brainstorm. Well, I mean, in the same so, ways, like like Leonardo da Vinci had a school, didn't he? Like, or Michelangelo had a school that you know some of some of it is like him, and some of it's just like his little kind of helpers. I think there's an element of that, but also, I mean, to an extent, maybe an algorithm is doing it for him. <laughs> just kind of insert line here a lot of preloaded kind of clever combinations that he makes and that's just bang out it goes none of this is true i like johnny Lewis a lot he's brilliant but i'm annoyed i'm annoyed that he slapped me off on the podcast so i'm trying to get my revenge
0: yes i feel like that that was commensurate with the efforts of johnny lou yes. and another podcast uh, so we have a beef not with a different podcast we have a beef beef simply with one of rory's most trusted
2: colleagues and friends. And yeah. friends. Yeah.